You're listening to Cape Watch Radio with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through the book of Acts. Call me sinners, poor, needy, and weak. He stands to save you now for pity and love, mighty power. He's willing and able. He calls you now. To do what is right and to be charged with wrongdoing or, or to work hard to maintain a good job and a good record and a good reputation only to have someone smear it. I mean, these kinds of injustices can easily crush the human spirit. And even a follower of Jesus Christ can be caught off guard by false accusations. Those of us who are in Christ, we know who we are and what we have in Christ. We know the truth, but let's face it, slander hurts. Have you ever been misunderstood or wrongly accused? Have you ever felt hopeless or defeated? Do you feel like giving up or giving in? God has not forgotten you. In today's message, Pastor Dave brings us hope through the example of Paul, who also found himself waiting for answers and promises from God. Now here's Pastor Dave with part one of his message entitled, Accused, from Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 12. We're going to be in Acts 24, so if you will... Uh, start there. We're going to look at Acts 24, 7. I think it's 27. First 12 verses of 25. So Acts 24, 27 to Acts 25, 12. So if you'll turn in your Bibles there, we're going to be in Acts 24, 27 through Acts 25, 12. So if you will turn there. So how many of you have ever been accused of wrongdoing but were innocent? You don't have to raise your hand. How many of you have ever been accused of wrongdoing, but you were innocent? In the book, The Church of Fire, written by R. Kent Hughes, he tells the story of Steve Linscott. And I want to look at that for a minute this morning. In the early morning hours of October 4th, 1980, a young nursing student was brutally murdered in Chicago's suburb of Oak Park. Following the advice of well-meaning friends, Steve Linscott and a student at Emmaus Bible College told police about a dream he had had the night of the crime. It was a dream about the crime. Oak Park police later arrested him, interpreting his dream as an account and a roundabout confession of a psychopathic killer. Later, a jury found Linscott guilty, and he was sentenced to 40 years in prison. But there was one problem. Then Scott was innocent. Only after much time in prison and numerous appeals, a process which lasted about 12 years, Lynn Scott was finally freed and vindicated. He said those years were absolutely, undoubtedly brought the most difficult challenges he ever had to face or maybe ever will face. He was separated from his wife and his children, except for small visits in the um, visiting room. He was wondering somehow if he brought this on himself, if he was responsible for this somehow. And why did God allow this to happen? I mean, he survived all the violence in prison and all the things. You can imagine what he saw those 12 years he was in prison. These were tough years, and yet he describes them as there was a growth process here. And there was a time of growing in the awareness of the goodness of God. Listen to his own words. I have come to realize that we cannot judge God's purposes or where he places us, or why he chooses one path of our lives as opposed to another. 
The Bible itself is filled with accounts of divine actions or inactions that do not seem fair, that do not make sense except when viewed in the light of God's perfect plan. He continues, Why were thousands of babies massacred while a baby named Moses was spared? Jacob was a liar and a thief, and yet it was he and not his faithful brother Esau who received the blessing of their father Isaac and eventually God himself. You know, on one level, it makes no sense that God would allow his son to die for the sins of humankind, but God has a plan, and indeed, his plan is perfect, unquote. I don't know how many of you or how many of us have ever gone through extreme circumstances such as these. However, I do know what it means to be falsely accused, and I believe some of you do also. To do what is right and to be charged with wrongdoing, or, or to work hard to maintain a good job and a good record and a good reputation, only to have someone smear it. I mean, these kinds of injustices can easily crush the human spirit. And even a follower of Jesus Christ can be caught off guard by false accusations. Those of us who are in Christ, we know who we are and what we have in Christ. We know the truth, but let's face it, slander hurts. Sometimes things just don't seem fair. I mean, take the Apostle Paul. He was arguably arguably one of the most devoted servants of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, over the years, he was hated, persecuted, and falsely charged. And here we are again in Acts 25, reading the same thing again that we read in Acts 24 and before. We have a similar theme here. The names have been changed, but we have a similar theme. But the bottom line is the Jews wanted Paul dead. They wanted him dead. And it seems as though they were going to stop at nothing to accomplish this. Let's look at our text this morning, and let's just read verses 1 through 12 in chapter 25. Read along with me silently, please. Now, when Festus had come to, to the providence, after three days he went up from Jerusalem, from, from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. And when he had remained among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. When he had come, the Jews had come down from Jerusalem, stood about, and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem there to be judged before me concerning these things? So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For I am, if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying, but if there is nothing in these of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, 
You have appealed to Caesar. Caesar, you shall go. Same old story. Same old story. You have a governor who is sympathetic to the Jews only because he wants popularity, only because he's a man-pleaser, only because he wants to please these men and get them to like him so they won't rebel against him. He tries to appease them by telling the Jews to come to Caesarea and and accuse this man. But once again, they come from Caesarea and they accuse Paul, and again, no proof. Paul firmly declares his innocence. We read in verse 8, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. Paul declares once again, I am innocent. Consider what Paul had been through already. Consider what he had endured. I mean, you remember, we've been studying. He was arrested in Jerusalem, although he had done nothing wrong. He had spoken to the angry mob of Jews, and they wanted him dead. He addressed the Sanhedrin, but to no avail. They wanted to tear him to pieces. Why? Because he spoke of the resurrection. They wanted to rip him apart. They wanted to rip him to pieces. He had to be rescued and protected by the Roman commander and his troops. But, if you remember correctly, while Paul was in that cell that night, in total despair, total darkness, he was visited by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the Lord Jesus came and encouraged him. And he said to Paul, take courage, Paul. Be of good cheer. Thanks for doing a great job in Jerusalem. And guess what, buddy? Now you're going to Rome, and you're going to testify of me of Rome. Isn't that just like our Jesus? To come to us in our darkest hour, to come to us in our darkest time of despair, in our darkest time of, of night, when you think you've just had it up to here and you can't take any more of it, Christ comes and he encourages you and says, come on, stay in the race, continue to run. You're doing such a good job. Come on. I have more work for you to do. I haven't finished with you yet. What an encouragement for Paul. People, many, many people believe that Paul was at his lowest point in his ministry, maybe even the lowest point of his life at this time. But what a rallying point. Paul has the Lord's promise that he would be go to Rome, the desire of his heart, and he would testify of Jesus there. I'm sure Paul was saying, where's the boat? My bags are packed. I'm ready to go. Sounds like a song. Don't sing it. I'm ready to go. Come on, where's the bomb? And the Lord said, not so fast, Paul. Hold that thought. Hold that thought. Paul's transferred to Caesarea to avoid yet another assassination attempt. And then he's brought before Felix, the governor. The Jews and their lawyers stand before Paul and they accuse him. But Felix can't find any fault. There's nothing of proof. There's no wrongdoing. Nothing of a crime against Rome. Nothing of a crime against the Jews. And nothing of a crime against the temple. From what Felix can tell, he's innocent. But Felix doesn't dismiss the charge. He doesn't dismiss the charge. Instead, he leaves him bound for two more years, hoping that money would arrive for his release. He was looking for a bribe. Two years. Two years. Look at verse 24, 27. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left him bound. Paul's left in limbo for two years. He's been accused of wrongdoing. He's been tried. There is no decision made, even though he is innocent. And now the apostle is waiting upon the Lord's promise. Lord, you said I was going to go to Rome. I'm stuck here now for two years. It's been at least two years. What's going on here? It's really interesting that as I was studying, that Jesus 
Jesus predicted this. He almost prophesied this in Matthew 10. I want to take a quick minute and just turn to Matthew 10 for a minute. I want to read a few verses there that Jesus talks about this. In Matthew 10, Jesus is sending out the 70. He's, he's appointing the 70 to go out. And he says in Matthew 10, verse 16, he says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you at that hour that you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of Father who speaks in you. What grace verses. Is this coming true in Paul's life? Paul's been delivered up. He's been before the council. He's been before governors, two of them. And guess what? He's not done. He's going to have to go before a king, King Agrippa. We'll study that next week in the, in the rest of Acts 25. And you know me. I'm trying to get in, in Paul's head. What's going on in Paul's mind during all this? What's Paul thinking during all this time? Is he thinking, where's your promise, Lord? You said I was going to go to Rome. I know when the Lord gives me a promise, I want it right now. I mean, Lord, give me a promise. Where is it? I'm looking for it. You know, waiting is not my specialty. I'm the one that pays for patience and give it to me now. Waiting is not my specialty. Here, but what, what's Paul thinking on all this time? What's, what's going through Paul's mind? It's been two years since his arrest. You know, Rome seems like a long, long way away. What was Paul doing these two years? What was he doing? Did he just sit in his cell and wait for the Lord to cause something to happen? I don't think so. I don't think so. You know, we know he spoke to Felix several times and his wife several times on several occasions in, in Acts 24, 26. I wonder how many times Paul told them the gospel. I wonder how many times Paul witnessed to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. We talked about Felix's procrastination last week and how he made the gravest mistake of his life by turning off Paul and not listening to him and not accepting Jesus Christ as a Savior at that time. We know Paul had liberty. He was allowed to have visitors. I'm quite sure that Paul had a great ministry going on these two years. But was Paul patient during these years, or was he fearful and discouraged? Was he frustrated or anxious? Did he feel defeated, or did he feel hopeless? You know, the promises of God hadn't come to pass. He wasn't in Rome yet. Oh, Lord, how much longer? Oh, did he have the peace of God? Did Paul have the peace of God that he told the Philippians surpasses all understanding? Was that in Paul's heart? Well, it doesn't say there, but we kind of think he did. We kind of think that's what type of person he did. Well, maybe the Lord has given you a promise. I know that the Lord has given some of you promises. I've heard your prayers, and I, I've talked to you. Maybe the Lord has given you pro a promise that hasn't come true yet, that hasn't manifested itself yet. Are you anxious about the promise? Is the promise always at the forefront of your mind? Do you actively pursue the promise? What's going on? Do you think that God has forgotten you because the promise hasn't taken place? Or maybe he's abandoned you and the promise? We know there's some great things about God's promises. There's some really, really great things about promises. Paul even writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1.20. He says, all the promises of God in him are yes and in him amen to the glory of God through us. Wow. All the promises of God are in him yes and in him amen. 
What's Paul saying here? Paul is saying that Jesus is the assurance to us that God's promises are true. And all of God's promises to you are wrapped up in Jesus Christ. This is the record God has given to us, eternal life, and the life is in his Son. God has promised us peace, but the peace is in Jesus Christ. He told the Ephesian church, he is our peace. God has promised mercies to you, but those mercies are coming to you in Jesus Christ. All the promises of God in him are yes. They're fulfilled in him to us. Just the fact that God sent his son is an assurance of us that God is going to keep all of his word and all of his promises. We have that assurance. Jesus is the affirmation that God means what he says and his promises are true. So Paul's declaring here, Jesus is the insurance. He is the yes of God to us. And this is where Paul's confidence is. This is where Paul has placed his confidence as a disciple of Christ, as an apostle. You know, there's another thing great about God's promises. The success and failure of God's promises are on him, the one who made the promise and not on me. All the yes and amen are in Jesus Christ. God is going to fulfill that promise. Paul would also write to the Philippians in Philippians 1 verse 6. How many of you had this on your refrigerator door? Being confident, of this very, being confident of this very thing. He who has begun the good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He began the work, he'll complete it. It's his work. He began the work, he'll complete it. And if he has given you a promise, he's going to fulfill that. He gave me a promise in 1993, and the promise was that I would be a pastor. 17 years later, that dream became a reality. I have to admit, I didn't wait very patiently most of the time. I have to admit that I was kind of fidgety a lot of the times, but that dream became a reality. That promise became a reality. So I guess I have to ask the question, if we're in this waiting period, what do we do when we're waiting for the promises of God? What do you do when you're waiting for the promises of God? Let me digress. In 1963, there was this movie that came out about the war. And I'm, a, I'm a World War II buff and Civil War buff, and I, I, I read a lot about it, World War I. But there was this movie that came out in 1963, and I remember it distinctively because we, I was in Miami, Florida, and my dad took me to see it in 1963. It was about the Normandy inver- invasion. It was about D-Day, and it was called The Longest Day. And everybody who was a star at that time was in this movie. You've probably seen it a hundred times because every time you turn around, it's on TV again. You know, especially around Memorial Day and around the Veterans Day and those kind of things. Anyhow, the night before the invasion took place, all these paratroopers went over to France and landed, and all these commandos went over in gliders, and they would land, and they were supposed to do specific jobs when they got over to France. Their job was to secure bridges or secure things and and hold them so that when the advancing forces from the um, beaches could get there, they would link up. And then would help them get there. Well, one group, one glider group, was commanded by this, um, this British general or this British captain or whatever. And they were supposed to go to this bridge. And it was a strategic bridge. And they needed to hold the bridge because they were afraid the Germans were going to blow up the bridge, which would hold up their crossing in. 
But they were told, you have to hold this bridge. And I specifically remember that when the commander or of this commando group was in front of his commanding officer, the general, the general kept on saying how imperative it was that they kept this bridge. And he kept on looking at the guy and saying, hold until relieved. Hold until relieved. And he said that over and over and over. And as the guy was on the glider, and they're gliding over the, the English Channel, he's sitting there, and you see him thinking to himself, and you hear the general's words, hold until relieve, hold until relieve. And they land, they have this great big fight with all the Germans, and they capture the bridge, and he's kind of looking up, and all of a sudden he stops, hold until relieve. And that's all you hear. And the next day, there's no sign of the advancing troop, and the Germans are coming all around them, and it looks like they might be overrun, and he hears, hold until relieved. That was his mantra. That's what he did. Now, why did I tell you that? It's a great question. <laughs> when I became a Christian, I started reading and studying the Word of God. And as I read and studied the Word of God, the Bible became alive to me. And I came across this verse in Luke 19.13. And I was reading the old King James, my big old King James version of the Bible. And as I read that, Jesus is talking about his return to earth. He's talking about when he comes back. He's talking to the disciples. And at the end of, of, of 1913, Jesus says, in the original King James, occupy until I come. Hmm. He says, occupy until I come. Now, in the new King James, it says, do business until I come. Same kind of idea. Well, all I could think about was this movie. All I could think about this movie, and now we have this, this, this message from Jesus, occupy until I come, occupy until I come, occupy until I come, hold until you're relieved. One commentator said this, now this is the word of Jesus to the waiting church, occupy till I come. And it's really cool here because the Greek word, it's a long one, it's pragmatio omahi, Say that six times, which basically means busy oneself. It means busy oneself. So here, we know the Lord is speaking about his return, which is one of his promises to us is that he will come again, a promise that we are still waiting to be fulfilled. In fact, we think it's getting ever closer and closer and closer. In fact, some of us always pray, Maranatha, please, Lord, come quickly. We are to do business until he comes. We are to hold until we are relieved. We're not to sit back and say, well, you know, the Lord's coming. There's no sense in finishing my education. The Lord's coming. There's no sense in me going into a business venture because the Lord's coming. There's no sense in me doing this. There's no sense in me doing that. But I think I'll go out and charge up my charge accounts because the Lord's coming. It's not what he's saying. We're not to live our lives predicated upon the Lord's coming in a particular span of time, but we're to occupy until he comes, yet anticipating that he may come at any minute. And we need to be ready when he comes. We need to be ready when that, when that trumpet sounds. We need to be ready. And being ready means we've accepted Christ's sacrifice. Being ready means we're, we're, we're born again and we're ready to be in the kingdom. We've, we've declared his kids by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are born again from above, born by the Spirit. The Spirit is dwelling in us, leading us and guiding us and showing us what we need to be doing. Occupy till I come. Well, that's all the time we have for today here on Cape Watch Radio with Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May. Don't forget to join us next time as we continue our verse-by-verse -verse study through the book of Acts. Now, as we mentioned at the beginning of today's program, we'd like to make available to you a free copy of today's message. 
We can send you a copy of today's message on audio CD when you email us at info at capewatchradio.com. That's info at capewatchradio.com. Or you can listen to or download the message as originally recorded at Calvary Chapel, Cape May. Just visit our website at www.capewatchradio.com. If you can't get to your computer to download or place your order, you can always call us at 609-884-5821. We'll be happy to help you. Again, that toll-free number is 609-884-5821. Again, we invite you to visit our website at www.capewatchradio.com, where we provide helpful information about our beliefs, service times, and a convenient map to our church. You can also email us with any questions or comments you might have. And that address again is info at capewatchradio.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you're in the Irma, New Jersey area and would like to visit us, Calvary Chapel Cape May is located at 596 Seashore Road in Irma, New Jersey. Cape Watch Radio is the radio ministry of Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel Cape May. Please join us next time as we continue our study through the book of Acts. That's next time on Cape Watch Radio.